this morning. A lot of you were here yesterday, really grateful for that. It was a great day of being in the Word, a great day for talking about how to be in the Word. And so our speaker is Matt Rogers. Matt came to our attention through a book called Seven Arrows. And this, this kind of writing that he did in the book, what got our attention to bring him here. He says the preface that he said, I am convicted that my God-given role is to equip God's saints for the work of the ministry, which means I have a responsibility to teach them to feast on God's word for themselves. I hope that you, you hear that verse, you hear that in there, and you hear it and you go, oh, we talk about that a lot too around here because we do. But the other things that he talked about was that by helping people understand how to read the Bible for themselves, digest the Bible for themselves, apply the Bible for themselves, and then turn around and help someone else do that, that that kind of theme and that kind of emphasis was a part of his book and a part of why he does things the way he does. And so he says this as well, that the need was to teach them not to depend on a middleman, but to read the Bible for themselves. And that's what we want to be doing as people, to be reading the Bible for ourselves and to be confident enough in it to be able to help someone else read it for themselves as well. And that's why we've invited Matt here to help us to emphasize that value and that quality of our church body of equip. And so please welcome Matt to the stadium here. I mean, it's a stadium. stadium. Thank you, Lord. Yeah. I think very big about us, right? Yeah. I think very big about us here in our stadium. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Welcome, Matt. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Ah, yes, yes. All right. Second Peter, please, if you've got a copy of God's Word, Second Peter. That's where we'll be this morning. I feel like uh, certain people's accents give them like three intellectual points uh, to their credit before they even start talking. Mine actually works the opposite direction, right? Uh, so you hear me and you think, oh my goodness, 40 minutes of this. So I'm trying to turn down the southern accent and I will uh, uh, beg your pardon to listen uh, as I attempt to uh, deliver God's word to you. Uh, I am from Greenville, South Carolina, right on the uh, border of uh, South Carolina, North Carolina state line. Uh, pastor a church there. I've been there 10 years. Uh, my wife and I have been married 15 years. We have four kids and another due in about two months. And all the jokes aside, we know how it happens, all that. We got it figured out. We know we're never going to be empty nesters. Just, we, we like kids. And so uh, we're having a good time. I have three girls and a little boy. And uh, we don't know what this next one's going to be. So it's going to be uh, a good time. Uh, I pastor the church. I also teach at a Baptist seminary in the southeast and travel a good bit for missions and evangelism purposes. So this morning, my task is to communicate uh, to you the responsibility of feasting on God's Word. And I want to do that using the second letter that Peter has written to the churches that are scattered abroad in modern-day Turkey. And to introduce this paragraph that concludes the letter, Second Peter will be in chapter 3, beginning in verse 14 here in a minute. I want you to envision three not-so-made-up scenes for me. The first scene is a middle-aged man, let's call him in his upper 40s, early 50s. He was saved in his 20s in college. And as he sits in the seats this morning, he can reflect back on the early days of coming to faith in Christ, being marked by a certain zeal and intensity for God's Word. He remembers the first time he began to read some of these letters and the beauty of hearing God speak to him. He's perhaps gotten journals at home sitting on a shelf of uh, doodles that he made back in college 
when it felt like he was intimate with God in a way that perhaps he hasn't been for some time. Now, he still goes to church, his family comes to church, and he's been around enough to know the things that you're supposed to do when the church gathers. He's certainly not renouncing his faith. But the reality is, as he hears the song sung or the word proclaimed, he's glancing around, looking at others, thinking there's something about their relationship with God that's just not true for me anymore. I feel apathetic. The zeal is just not there. It's been a long time since the alarm clock went off and I said I can't wait to hear God speak to me through his word. Scene two, a similar individual at a similar stage in life. He's been to more Bible studies than you could count. He knows the books of the Bible in order and can recite them to you. He knows how to slice theology thin and is quick to lean into any theological discussion that you want to give him. Being around the church for some time, the pastors assume that this would be the perfect person to disciple a new believer. And in God's kindness, someone comes to faith in Christ. Let's say he's 18, a freshman in college. And the pastors assume, well, this individual is clearly mature in his faith. Let's let him do what Jesus commanded in Matthew 28, teach this young person to do all things that Christ has commanded because he is with us to the end of the age. And so the pastors pair this middle-aged individual with this new convert, 18, and say, you've got a year to teach him to obey all things that Christ has commanded. Go and make a disciple. And this zealous middle-aged man is absolutely paralyzed. He doesn't know what to do. All he's been taught and trained to do is bring people to church in hopes that the pastors will somehow make a disciple. He doesn't know how to translate that to actual disciple-making in the context of the church. Or scene three, the young 18, 19-year-old who watches around the church people who have grown in knowledge of Christ for some extended period of time and sees in them a lack of love. It seems that their knowledge of God has hardened them. And the reality is, he says, when he comes to church, you know, I really don't want to be like them when I grow up, if I'm honest. Why don't we all just love Jesus? Isn't that the point? And so he sits around in the church service with a judgmental tone, assuming that everybody else with a soured face look on their faces as they sit in the seats is not the kind of person that he wants to become when he grows up. Friends, these scenes, these not-so-made-up scenes, are the faces that I preach to each week. They are people that, for one reason or another, have lost their zeal for the things of the Lord. They've isolated either knowledge of God and mission for God in a way that has caused them to be woefully apathetic. I don't know you or your congregation. I do count it a great honor to stand in front of a congregation that is not my own. But my guess is the same would be true for you here this morning. And so let's allow Peter's words to us to spur us all, myself included, from a bit of apathy. 
Now, to get a running start to this letter, I'll actually ask you to flip back to the way the letter introduces itself in 2 Peter 1, 1 and 2. We're going to look at the conclusion, but you never look at a conclusion without looking at the introduction. And so we want to see how this letter begins. Simon Peter writes in 2 Peter 2, verse 1, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith equal to ours through the righteousness of God and the Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now you recognize the header of this letter, Second Peter. We connect it to the letter that precedes it, First Peter. And there the introduction is that Peter's writing to the saints who are scattered. The people of God, he writes, who are dispersed. Now, if you're familiar with your Bibles, you think, well, that seems pretty familiar, right? This is a familiar refrain even from the Old Testament as we have the people of God. Wow, there's a fly attacking me. Sorry, uh, that was a wild swat. Uh, I've never done that. Uh, so we've got in the Old Testament, we've got the people of God living on the land. God warns them, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to scatter you. And he does in the exile. And we have prophets writing during this stage, to the saints who are scattered, saints like Daniel who's scattered in foreign land. Well, here in the New Testament, we encounter this scene again, though not clearly from judgment from God, God's mission of filling the earth since the stoning of Stephen and moving forward. The people of God scatter from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so here Peter writes to these saints that are scattered. He makes a stunning claim here in verse 1. You all, all you random saints who are scattered abroad, you've obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. That's pretty stunning, right? He says, the apostles, the great ones, all of those who are in Christ have an equal standing. Why? Not because of their acts, not because of the things they're doing, but because of a righteousness that was given to them that they did not deserve, a righteousness that is given to all those who are in Christ. Of our great God, this righteousness comes from our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he goes into commending them what they are to do in this space while they are scattered. Now back in 2 Peter 3, verse 14, the conclusion of the letter. He writes, therefore, so we're we're bookending here. He's made some ethical exhortation to them in the middle of this letter. And then he's going to conclude, therefore, dear friends, while we wait for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Now, reading that verse in isolation from the rest of the letter forces the question, what are these things? Well, the these things that Peter is speaking to is the return of Christ, the completion of all of his work of restoring the world that's been broken by sin. And he says, while we're waiting for these new heavens and new earth, how do we live in the delay between Jesus' first coming and his second? And in a very real way, that's our question as well. How do we live in this present moment? And he answers that question for us with, with, with a big idea there in verse 14. My Bible, I'm reading out of the CSB in one this morning, says to make every effort. Your Bible might say there in verse 14, to be 
diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. Now flip back again to chapter 1. And we're going to see this same idea presented beginning in verse 4. 2 Peter 1 verse 4. By these he's given us very great and precious promises. So that through them we may share in the divine nature escaping the corruption that is in the world. Because of the evil desire. Now notice this in verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice the, the statement, the command here is to make every effort to do something. There's a responsibility that he gives these people. And notice the blend in verses 5 through 9 of both heart virtues, self-control, endurance, brotherly affection, with the ongoing repetition of this growth in knowledge of our Lord and Savior. In fact, at the end of the letter, he pairs those together with the idea of growing grace and knowledge. He pits them both together. And he says, you're to be diligent in this. Now, in some ways, this is counterintuitive, right? Because if he is saying, you have received a righteousness that is not of your own, that cannot be taken away, that is secure until Christ returns, you might expect the command to be, so chill out. Take it easy. Coast. Like the biggest things of life are already taken care of. Relax. It's a bit like what you might assume people would think as they enter a retirement stage, right? You've done all your work. You've saved for your retirement. You've built your dream house. You've raised your kids. What do you do? Chill out. Next 20 years, take it easy. But this is not what Peter commands for believers. He says, make every effort. Be diligent to grow in holiness so that you would be without spot or blemish. Now, I want you to notice what he's going to do beginning in verse 15 and following. He's going to connect this growth to knowledge of God through the revealed scriptures. Holiness corresponds to our knowledge of God and our conformity to him by virtue of his revealed word. Growth and knowledge of God and love for God go together. And this is true in our human relationships as well. My love for Sarah, my wife, depends on my knowledge of her, does it not? I mean, just anyone in a crowd is not helpful. I need to know who Sarah is and how she responds to love. It's important that I know her. And conversely, my knowledge of her fuels my love for her. They're designed to work in tandem. We're embodied souls feeling and mind. Those are meant to go together. So our knowledge of God is meant to not be a cul-de-sac 
on the highway to love, but it is meant to fuel our love. These things go together. And it becomes for us a means of transformation and holiness. The Proverbs writer is going to describe it this way, this sense of diligence. This is Proverbs 2, verses 3 through 5. If you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver or search for it as a hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Now, here's a, a quick question of application. I don't know you, so, so if this feels more precise than it needs to be, forgive me. But are you currently diligent in the things of God? Or maybe we could click zoom out on the Google map a little bit and just ask the question, what are you diligent in currently? Here, the Proverbs writer, the fount of wisdom is going to say, you should be diligent. It should parallel the way you might search for a hidden treasure. Which then presupposes a question. How would you search for a hidden treasure? Like if I told you this morning that buried on this property was a jar with a million dollars in cash on it, how would you pursue that treasure? We'd probably have a bunch of excuses to head to the restroom during the sermon so that you could find a way to get outside. And by the time we finished this morning, there would be a lot of holes strewn about this property, right? If we know that something is available and we believe that having something would be beneficial to us, then we will seek it with all our heart. If it's not beneficial, like if I assume a million dollars would not be beneficial to me, then why care? doesn't matter, but I know a million dollars would be a game changer for us, for my family. If I told you there was a pot of collards buried out back, forgive the southern, I mean, none of us are digging holes for that because we assume who wants a pot of collards? Or if I told you that the treasure was not available, then you wouldn't care, right? If I said, even if you find it, you can't have it. But the wisdom of God is both available and beneficial. So, we have to seek after it. Those of us who are in Christ can't neglect it. And there's wonderful encouragement to us, lest you think I'm commending to you some academic intellectual pursuit. Jesus encourages us in places like Luke 10, When he prays to the Father, thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise. And you've given them, you've revealed them to little children. Such was your gracious will. God gives things to those who pursue him like little kids. Consider again the image that I just used. If there was a treasure hidden on this property, how would kids pursue that treasure in contrast to how you might? Well, there's a certain decorum that's required for adults, right? We we can't recklessly pursue the treasure because people might judge us. So, So we've got to have a certain air of formality about us. But you tell my kids, now they're 12 and under, that there are $2 hidden in a plastic Easter egg in the yard, and those kids are going berserk, right? 
They are diligently pursuing that plastic egg for those two dollars. There's a sense at which this diligence should reflect a childlike pursuit of a treasure that is hidden from a good, uh, that is hidden, that is given to us by a good gift giver. This should encourage us with great humility in our use of the mind, but it should also encourage us that God gives this, his wisdom, not to the wise of this world, but to those who seek him like a child. Is that indicative of your personal Bible study currently? Would anybody who eavesdrops on the way you open God's word say, man, that's like a kid looking for an Easter egg. Notice the continuing. Verse 15. Also, regarding the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. So notice here the connection. He's speaking about the patience of God, him tarrying in his return, and he picks up on a theme from Paul, who he says wrote according to the wisdom that was given to him, which points us as readers to this sense that what we're reading here is God-given wisdom, God-appointed leaders who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is Second Peter 2, verses 20 and 21. Men speaking from God as they were carried along by God's Spirit. This God-appointed, Spirit-empowered, apostle-revealed truth is now canonized in our Scriptures and is God's grace gift to us. And friends, God's wisdom cannot be found apart from God's word. This is not the wisdom of the world. In fact, Paul's going to write in 1 Corinthians 3, let no one deceive himself. If he thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly to God. So what's he commending? Not a worldly pursuit of wisdom, but a humble pursuit of God's revealed truth. So God's people diligently seek wisdom through the revealed scriptures that is given to us as a grace gift. And then perhaps, at least for me, one of the most encouraging verses in all of the Bible. He speaks about these things, verse 16. He speaks about these things in all of his letters. And there are some of the matters that are hard to understand. That's encouraging, right? Right? He's like, man, brother, he was carried along by, by God, but I'm, I'm, reveal, I'm using this same spirit that's carrying me along to reveal this. And it's hard for me to understand what Paul is writing. Be encouraged. It's not just you. Even an apostle found Paul a little hard to grasp at points. How much more so separated by thousands of years and time and continents and cultures, perspective that's shaped by those cultures. It is going to take work, friends for us to understand God's revealed truth. And this would make sense, wouldn't it? If the Bible gives us insight into the nature of God and his redemptive plan for all the world, 
Do you think that's going to be simple? So if you're here this morning and and you're so arrogant as to say, I've got it. I've figured this thing out. No more need for Bible study for me. Friends, be reminded that we are given a glimpse into the glories of the triune God who spoke all things into existence. You are going to spend the rest of your life mining the beauty of this book and you'll never hit bottom. You're never going to come to the end of your sanctification until eternity with Christ glorified forever. So we're pursuing him, knowing we're not going to hit bottom, but we can have confidence in our pursuit that God longs to give his people his truth as they pursue it. Paul writes, the one who is difficult to understand, to second, uh, in Second Timothy to this young protege, he says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So be diligent in what I'm writing, but it's the Lord that's going to give understanding. So what is your responsibility, friends? It's to be diligent. It's to make every effort. What is God's role? To give understanding. To give your work apart from the gift of God's spirit to give understanding is going to be worthless. But to merely assume that you can passively go through the motions of church attendance without diligently pursuing God in his word, takes the responsibility that God has given each of us and undercuts it. We are called to diligence. And this exhortation, friends, is so difficult in our modern culture, isn't it? I mean, where is an area of life currently that you diligently apply yourself to extended fault? Sociologists uh, speculate that we're interrupted by a buzz every eight seconds if our devices are on and connected to us. Reading an article amounts to little more than a quick thumb scan to figure out some main headers. An extended long piece article in a journal of three to 5,000 words for most of us requires multiple weeks to move through interrupted by extended periods where we're not thinking on that matter. It's going to take work to be diligent in the things of God in the face of a culture that is consumed with the buzz. You simply requires diligence, sustained, thoughtful, intentional listening to a sermon, reading a book, engaging with the Bible takes work. So why should you do the work? Why, why should you do the work? Well, positively, I've said you should do the work because God has a treasure that he wants to give you. That should be encouraging to you. But negatively, notice this at the end of verse 16. The untaught and unstable will twist them, this is the word of God, to their own destruction, as they also do with the rest of Scripture. Why should you be diligent? Because destruction awaits those who are not. Destruction awaits those who who are not. False teachers are going to twist and distort the scriptures. And if you are diligent, let's go positively again, you're going to recognize 
That's false. You're going to find encouragement. I'm not going to be like that. And you're not going to get carried away. Notice the parallel of the language. He writes that there are those, the uh, spirit-empowered apostles who are carried along to record God's word. Those who are not diligent are carried along in a different direction, away from God. Now I know, I, I know what plays in your mind. No, that's not going to happen to me. I've been around enough. I got enough buffer in my life to protect myself from an end of destruction and being carried away. Friends, if that is you, you think too highly of yourself. None of us are immune to the deception of sin and the deceitfulness of false theology. And so we would negatively see a corrective to us. We will always have people who attempt to twist, distort, minimize, change God's word as revealed in the scriptures. And so we must work. We must be diligent so that we believe truth and we commend truth to one another. And you think, but Matt, little old me, why does this matter? I'm just like, a, I just come to church here. Why, why does it matter? Friends, it matters because you are a part of the body of Christ here in this place. And you are given to one another as a means of mutual building up and sanctification into Christ's likeness. Friends, anytime, and it's going to happen in just a minute when we dismiss, someone is going to share a scene of suffering with you. We prayed for a couple of those a moment ago. And you're going to respond with something like, it's okay. God's got it all under control. Everything will work out. Really? What have you just said to someone? You have just twisted and distorted truth in such a way that you have caused your brother or sister a means of stumble. You have just lied about God's character to them. This is serious business in the church. Someone shares with you a tough marriage. Things are hard. And you say, get out. God wouldn't want you to suffer like that. What are you doing? Give up on him. Friends, what you have just spoken to one another is speaking on behalf of God. And it is imperative that those of you in the church are responding to one another with clear instruction from the truth of Scripture. This is difficult, careful matters. Someone suffering has need. And you say, God will provide for your needs. Yes! How do you know that? How do you encourage them with the truth of God's word? We do that by being diligent and making every effort to grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is how the letter ends. But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is the bookend of the letter. And notice, there is no time clause attached to this. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for the first two years you're a Christian. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
when you've just committed really intentional sin and you feel super guilty. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when your family's going through a really hard time. Yes, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ until he returns. I am often, um, I'm, I'm 40, I just turned 40, uh, and, and, and it used to be when I, when I was early in my faith, I would look at others with really great gifts, and I would admire their gifting. Great communicator, great leader. Who wouldn't want to follow that individual? And I would think that is phenomenal. Well, 20 years of walking with Jesus and leadership in the church, and I've seen more than my fair share of great gifts flame out. Would I admire any more are men and women who walk faithfully with Jesus for an extended period of time. Finish the race looking back saying, I grew in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I may not have been the most gifted. I may not have been the best leader. Nobody may have spoken my name from a sermon, but I was faithful to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, success doesn't equal great gifts or much responsibility. Success equals faithfulness to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So is this church successful? Is this church on the path to success? Far too often we define that by how many seats are in the building, how many services you're running, how big your campus is. Friends, I think that's an inadequate answer to success in the life of the church. Are you growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? That's the mark of success. So might I pray for you that the Lord would redouble your efforts to that end and you would be a people who grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father, we bow uh, with, a, with a strong sense of, uh, of responsibility that, you, that you've given us. Um, we bow recognizing that the sin that so easily entangles our hearts pulls against this, uh, this diligence, seeking after you as a treasure, growing grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, we're, we're so prone to simply going through religious emotions that lack a heart of love and fervor for you. So might you, by the kindness of your spirit this morning, minister to the hearts of the men and women in this room such that Peter's words from so long ago resound in their ears this week, that they would make every effort, that they would be diligent. Why? Because you've given us a grace gift. You've given us a treasure. So may we be faithful to pursue that treasure. Would you use this church, their ministry to one another, their mutual upbuilding as they speak the words of God to one another? to be a light in this community such that those who are pursuing the wisdom of this world would see and hear a contrasting wisdom, the eternal wisdom of the triune God. And would that cause many to bow in humble faith and repentance? And perhaps until eternity, God, would you see fit to conform us in grace and knowledge for Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, would we be the kind of people who finish well and don't coast to eternity? 
Would you redouble our efforts to that end? We pray for the sake and the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.